we are going to do a little bit purpose-wise. We're going to focus on gratitude. We're going to talk about thankfulness because we just had Thanksgiving, and we're gearing into the silly season to buy stuff for Christmas. And I think we need to touch on this as a community. We need to come to the table of communion. But getting there, the reason I'm the person qualified here is because I have the gift of managing to completely avoid gratitude and thankfulness. I am, that is my superpower. And I would like to share with you the skills to completely avoid a thankful life. Thank you for, I'm like, geez, what if it's just silent at that point? But we pulled it off. So let's pray, because God knows we need to pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we come before you in all sincerity with the clear understanding that we need to live these lives of gratitude, and we do not know how. We need to start with just a blank slate, and we need to ask your Holy Spirit to build us in a way that is glorifying to you and would just capture the hearts of the people around us. In these next brief minutes, God, speak to us in ways that are profound and mysterious and real. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. So uh, a bit of biographical detail that is relevant, or not relevant, but I get to say it. Um, I, my job right now is I'm a husband and father, but my drive away to job, I'm the principal at a middle school. I heard a groan. Did I hear a groan? <laughs> was that me? It was me, wasn't it? <laughs> and I'm the principal at the middle school I went to. <laughs> right, right, thank you. And... Um, <laughs> And I watch, how many of you don't remember middle school? That means the therapy is working completely well. Just keep, (laughs) breathe. Middle school's horrible. It happens to you. No one goes to middle school. Middle school, you swim through middle school, and it's rough. And I watch it happen on the stage where it happened to me. And it's, it's, it's it's like driving past a car accident every day, but no one's hurt. And you get to just go, oh, oh, I'm glad that's not me, because I remember that kid who's sitting alone at lunch, and I was that kid. Well, I didn't have tons of friends. I did. But, you know, other kids <laughs> sat alone at lunch, and some of us are still sitting alone at lunch, and that's where it started was in middle school. And we realized, I'm going to be doing a lot of alone at lunchtime, and that's why it's hard is because they're just, for those of you that don't know, they're like 10, 11, and 12, and 13. Some are 14. Um, And that's where they start realizing how humanity works, right? And it's brutal, hopefully. And it's brutal, and it's, it's over and over again, day after day. And sitting and watching it, I'm learning things. It's like a little laboratory, and selfishly, I get to see human behavior just on display. Because middle schoolers don't have what you and I have. We have these grown-up ways of masking what we're feeling. And we're good at it. And we're, if there's, it's intricate skills that we've developed to layer over what we're actually going through. And as Christians, I think we're better at it than non-believers because I think, I think the person, we know how we're supposed to feel about things and we can rarely achieve it, but we do a lot of layering. Middle school, not a lot of layering, not a lot of subtlety. And I was sitting in my office the other day and there was a seventh grade boy crying in the office. I have a table and they sit and they cry. No, 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 and that's no oh. Wait till they finish the story, you'll hear why he's crying. <laughs> he's sitting there and he's crying, and I've got it's been seven years I've been there, so I'm getting some, I'll be honest, I'm getting some email done. And he's, you know, oh God. 
I keep looking over because there's a, there's a point where the breathing thing stops. And if you're a parent, you know, don't address your child in the beginning of the cry arc. Let the cry arc kind of peak and then you can talk to the child. It's, don't laugh, it's totally true. So he arced and then he's coming down and said, what's going on, man? And he said, I'm being bullied, which is a useless term now. Bullying used to mean something. Now it just means somebody's bothering him. So you have to find whether it's like dangerous bullying that we have to stop or just life. And so he, I, I tried to assess whether he was being endangered or he was just having a life experience. Turns out it was life experience. Here's what was happening. In the locker room, he says, remember the locker room? Got right. I just felt the wash of trauma come back from you. Do you remember changing into your PE clothes? Can you imagine some of those? There's a child. I see you, Mary. There's people that are doing this now that you used to put on PE clothes and go exercise in them, and then you'd lock them in a little metal box, and then you'd come back the next day and put the same clothes on. You would never do this now. And kids do this. Some boys never take them home. It's disgusting. And they un remember the shirt would be bald and you'd have to like and pull it apart. Anyway, so this kid was in the locker room. He was being left out of something that was very clear. They're doing it and they're not, I don't get, I'm not being included and I'm just being bullied and this shouldn't be happening. And he was enraged that he was being left out. And I said, what are they doing, man? What are they leaving you out of? And there's a game. There's a lot of games in middle school. They come and go. But there's a game called Red Star. No one, good. So it means you're good people. The way it's a boys game, boys and girls have different games in middle school. Girls games are very sophisticated. I don't understand them. Boys games are very simple. Red Star, when you're changing in the locker room, you watch your buddy and next to you, your friend usually. And when he takes his shirt off, when it gets over his face, you slap him in the stomach like hard. Not like a, like, God, bam, you give it to him, and he usually goes, oh, my God, you know, and then you both watch, and what appears on his stomach is a red star, because of the imprint of your hand slapping him. Now, men are simple, ladies. This, this is where it started, you know, and, you, and then the next day, your friend slaps you in the stomach, and you're playing red star. So this kid is in my office because no one is hitting him. <laughs> right? And I'm like, this, and I'm, part of me is in the email still. Part of me is with his agony, and part of me is going, this is fascinating. What an amazing human. This kid is just raw because he's left out. His buddies are doing something, and they're not doing it to him. Now, no adult would manage themselves that way. We would have so many reasons we were upset that had nothing to do with being left out, right? We would never admit, well, they're doing it and they're not taking me. We would be mad. The game is, is inappropriate. This is unacceptable. These kids shouldn't be hitting each other. I want them to hit me, but that's not where I'm going to start this. This, is, this shouldn't be happening to anybody. We would have really good reasons that our feelings were our feelings instead of the reality that you just felt like they were leaving you out. So I said, there's only one thing I could do. I said, stand up. <laughs> Come here. And I took him by the front of the shirt. You're wondering if I did it right now. I know I didn't do it. I would have been immediately fired. I, slapped, I just called the parent. Hey, I just slapped your kid. He's feeling better. He's back in class. <laughs> Adults, um, 
we have better ways of masking things. We're not that primal. But I just drove home from Thanksgiving dinner with uh, my extended family, and I watched this phenomenon happen, and this is a little bit to the heart for me. If you don't do this, um, you're better than me, which is fine. But has anyone else had the phenomenon of the drive home and you and your significant other just start ripping the snot out of the people you just had dinner with? <laughs> or some of the brave are nodding, the, the humble are, no, no, no. I don't do this, I don't want to do this anymore because I have children now and I have to pretend to be a better person. That's called parenting. <laughs> and on the drive home, we, my wife and I used to, I'm going to say, because we're really working on this, because the Lord, I think, has said, don't do this anymore. But it's just like, can you believe that she wore the scarf that we gave her two years ago? She didn't wear it last year, but now she decided, I mean, stupid, silly stuff. I can't believe he came, and he was always on time this time, but he can't be on time where it's at our house. He's 20, you know, it's late. He doesn't bring anything. And we just go after the people that we just were with, our family that we purposefully don't live with anymore, and we whip them. And, I, and this year, we didn't. I said, Heather, we, actually, Heather said, we can't, so we stopped. And I realized there's a reason beyond just being petty and snarky. There's a reason that that happens. That does something for us as adults. And it has very little to do with just the people we ate with. There's a functionality that has. That's something, there's layers deeper at a core that that's, because tr- I still wanted to do it. And I don't know what it does. Maybe in, in, in a very positive way, you drive away. There's a reason you don't live with your family, that you get frustrated more by them than anyone else, right? And maybe you're creating distance. You're kind of recalibrating yourself and your own family. That could be, could be what it is for me, which is that they're crazy people, so I need, to, you know, I need to reset myself. But whatever is really going on, the actions and the feelings are not related to the reality. And I would submit this morning that the same thing is happening when we think about gratitude for us. That our actions and our feelings, even I would say our prayers, at least mine, are really not correctly reflecting what gratitude and thankfulness would look like if I was being honest, like Red Star Kid. I don't know why this happens, but what are we supposed to do, you guys? We live in the most prosperous society in the history of human civilization. We, the poorest among us, live in places where we can control the environment and make it hotter or colder based on our whim. We live in a healthcare system from Band-Aids to chemotherapy that is designed to extend our lives to keep us as pain-free as anyone has been in any human that has ever walked the earth. We live in Silicon Valley, and the reality of the fact that globally, the majority of human beings own one pair of shoes doesn't enter our minds when we look into our closets. Frankly, and I'm just going to be very honest, and I don't know if it's right, but it's paralyzing to me how much stuff I have and how many blessings I have and how wonderful things are going. It paralyzes me. I should be grateful. I should be swimming in gratitude, and I'm not. And when I try to, I just start with just guilt. Because some of you right now, that just washes guilt. I should feel so different. And I just don't. I don't. Maybe you do, and if you do, that's please, just wait for us. But... I don't feel grateful like I should. 
this happened and it kind of crystallized for me a while back. I had had a difficult principal week, a lot of crying, and then a lot of nights, there's nighttime stuff, and all I was gearing for was Saturday. I had a free Saturday. And I was like, oh, Saturday will be fine. I can reconnect with my children, with Heather. We had nothing else to do. It was going to be great. You know, the free Saturday. Woke up Saturday morning to a broken refrigerator. Now, those two words cannot contain the rage that I felt that my Saturday had been stripped from me by a broken refrigerator. I literally stood in front of the refrigerator, and as I'm pulling food, more food than I could possibly need that day, right? I'm pulling food out and slamming it down on the counter, and the string of words coming out are just completely off the chain. I can't even, you know, and I'm just, ah, the refrigerator. Olivia, my two and a half, what's that word mean, Daddy? It means the refrigerator's broken, sweetheart. And I'm banging the food down. And as I'm doing this, I'm, I'm, I'm in the rage. It's funny, but I'm angry. And I know some of you know what I'm talking about. Completely inappropriate anger to the situation. And as I'm doing this, I realize I have a garage. And in my garage is a backup refrigerator. <laughs> and does that bring me to peace and, ah, I'm so fun? No. I am then ticked off that I'm going to spend my day going to get the big dolly thing from U-Haul to get my backup magical box that keeps my food cold into the house and the broken one out of the house. It didn't hit me until the food was in the backup refrigerator in the house, and the old one's in the driveway now, that I just thought, how is this happening? How can I be this messed up? that my backup machine to keep my abundance of food set me off because it took my Saturday. Thank God this happens in Scripture because it makes me feel more normal. Not the refrigerator thing. It's a little connected, but come with me. In the book of Jonah, which is the best book in the Bible because it's four chapters long. The book of Jonah, (laughs) if you haven't read it, you know the whale part. And that's not all of it. There's more. And in the book of Jonah, God comes to Jonah and says, hey, you're going to go to Nineveh. You're going to preach to these people because they're horrible. And Jonah, Nineveh's over here. And Jonah, if you remember, he goes to Tarshish, which is far away from Nineveh as it can be. The storm comes. They throw Jonah off the boat. There's more than this, but it's four chapters. You can read it. They throw Jonah off the boat. The storm stops. God provides a fish that eats Jonah. And then I I picture it this way. It doesn't happen this way, but the movie, he picks the the fish eats Jonah, swims him to Nineveh is how I picture it, and then it says it vomits him onto the beach. Then Jonah goes into the city, preaches to the city. It's a big city, three days to walk around, and this beautiful thing happens. From the king down to the lowest peasant, the city repents. The king leaves the palace, takes off his royal stuff and puts on like sackcloth or like burlap and sits in ashes and says, God, have mercy. And Jonah is livid because he hates these people and he doesn't want them to be forgiven. So the Bible says he goes out the east side of the city into the desert. He builds a little shelter thing and he puts a stick (laughs) and he sits underneath it because he wants to see if God's gonna forgive the city or if God's gonna blow him up. And he sits there, and he's just mad. He says, I'm angry enough to die. And he sits, and God causes a vine to grow. And I picture this vine growing probably quicker than like a normal vine, and it it weaves in through Jonah's shelter that he had built, his cruddy little one, and I picture it stabilizing it. 
And then it says that it shaded him. And then it says so clear, and Jonah was grateful for the vine because it let him keep doing what he was doing. Jonah felt validated because I got something that's gonna let me watch to see if God forgives these horrible people. Now, God being God and having a sense of humor, the next day makes a worm to kill the vine so it withers up. And just to see what Jonah does, honestly, like he's like, let's see, this is gonna kill the vine now, it's gonna be great. And Jonah just completely falls apart. And he says, I knew you were a forgiving God and I knew you were gonna not kill these people like you promised you were, and now the vine's gone and I gotta sit here in the sun and watch. And God says, Jonah, are you right to be this angry? You didn't make the vine grow. You didn't kill it. And Jonah says, yes, I'm right, because he's like us, he's right. I'm angry enough to die. And God says, look at this city. There's 100,000 people sitting there. And there's two ways to read it. It either says they don't know their right hand from their left, or, and I like this version better, they're living in spiritual darkness. There's 100,000 people, Jonah, that are in darkness, and you're mad that I'm gonna forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. And then it ends. And we don't know what happened with Jonah. We do know that God relented, but we don't know if his gratitude was healed. I would submit this morning that our gratitude needs to be healed because what we're doing, at least what I'm doing, I'm seeing thankfulness and gratitude as an end point. And I'm here in guilt and in abundance and I'm trying to just claw through it to get to, God, if only I could be grateful. And that isn't the truth of it. That is, that is the deception. Gratitude isn't an end point for us. Gratitude is now. Gratitude is the beginning. It is something we journey in, not to. Does that make sense? We have to this season because we're not doing it right the other way. We have to start in gratitude for the kind of God we serve and move that forward instead of assuage the guilt for how much we have by pretending it's not important to us. As we move with gratitude, there's a power, there's a momentum in that that I've seen in my own life with my children. When I'm grateful for who they are, there's a, there's a I can't say it any other way, there's a momentum that just plows forward into this beautiful thing. But when I look at this location I'm supposed to get to, it just changes, it makes it drudgery. So you know, this is beyond us. We don't have the power to live this way. And that is absolutely fantastic because God knows that too. And when Jesus was here with his disciples, before they knew the extent of what was gonna happen, he sat with them, he stopped them, and he said, we're gonna have a meal. We're gonna eat. This is bread. Eat it. It's my body. It's broken for you. Take this wine and drink it. It's my blood shed for you. When I'm gone, do this and remember me. This has happened, this communion, this experience, this meal has happened billions of times. And when we do it today, as we enter into this season of celebrating this, the incarnation, God himself coming to be our vine, to, to stabilize us and shade us from what we deserve, 
as we do it today, my prayer is that we would just be given gratitude. It seems silly to need to be given something that we should generate, but we can't. We can't generate it on our own. God is here to give you a thankful heart and to give you eyes for those around us in San Jose that are in spiritual darkness, those at our Thanksgiving table that we're talking about that desperately need to know that we love them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is not in us to be the kind of people we can, dis- we can be by your spirit. You are clear that when we abide in you, it is miraculous. God, free us from the need to achieve states of being like gratitude or thankfulness. Free us from that this morning. As we come and take communion, Lord, and as those of us that believe in you come to take the bread and the wine, regenerate in us the, just the grateful spirit that you are God, that you are a God of mercy and forgiveness God, I pray that you would provide for each soul here the clarity that comes from forgiveness, redemption, and knowing that you are our God. We are grateful, Lord. Help us in our ingratitude. As the music plays, as you are led, please come, share this meal, and may God bless you.